Welcome to Partisan Gardens. We can't wait any longer. For a tech breakthrough, climate apocalypse, the revolution, or a reform of the USDA loan system. On Partisan Gardens, we know climate catastrophe is here, and it's our food system's dead end. Here we see sustainable fine dining and ecological destruction, hunger and obesity, extreme wealth and immense poverty. We must be frank about reality to reckon with our options. We must choose sides and become partisans of a new way to live and grow food. This alternative path is already under construction. Through the experiments and struggles of food service and agricultural workers, we are figuring out how to create food systems that will nourish a livable world for us all. Partisan Gardens will feature stories from kitchen staff, new small farmers, undocumented slaughterhouse organizers, agroecology researchers, black farming cooperatives, urban gardeners, indigenous land stewards, permaculturists, and countless others exploring this field of experimentation. Let those of us who refuse to wait proceed together. The current food system has failed. And we are on the side of nourishment and care. For this episode, we share a candid and generative conversation between Kay and Sarah, shortly after Sarah's farm, World's End, hosted a group of visitors for a week. They have reflections on that experience and the role of farms in hosting visitors from neighboring cities. They touch on the uncanny idea of owning the land and how that's driven World's End Farm to seek out a cooperative model. They discuss the transition from a for-profit farming model to a donations-based method of feeding people and a way of treating a farm as a powerful place of change. But there's also a balance to be struck between centering personal relationships and valuing respite, between the ingrained pleasure response we get from buying things for ourselves and the undercurrent of exploitation in most commercial goods. Their conversation stresses nuance, balance, and being kind to oneself while struggling for a more mindful existence in a precarious world. So my name is Sarah Ryhannon. I am the current owner and steward of World's End Farm, which is 107 acres located on Mohawk land in central New York State, around Esperance, New York. We are a diversified homestead educational center, which means that we grow vegetables and flowers. We keep bees, we have chickens, layer hens, about 200 broiler hens a year, and we keep a flock of Icelandic sheep. And we bring visitors to the farm throughout the year to educate them and kind of give them a peek into what that sort of integrated homesteading farming looks like with the hopes that they might decide to steward land themselves and adopt some of those regenerative practices. Great. Yeah, thank you for that. Could you situate that a little bit? I mean, a lot of us have kind of different perspectives and different ideas about what the urgency is or sort of the impetuses around land stewardship wanting it to be done in a, in a regenerative way. Could you give some context to kind of why you think it's important, why, why you're doing what you're doing? Sure. Well, it's been a long journey for me. I mean, I've been on that land for 11 years. And it started very much as a commercial endeavor to grow flowers for a floral business that I had been running for about 10 years in New York City. And the more time I spent on the land and thought about various problems that I was constantly 
you know, that, that so many of us are sort of um, ruminating, regurgitating constantly, whether it's, you know, social injustice, climate injustice, the more I realized that, you know, running a fancy flower business in the city was just like, wasn't going to work for me anymore. And so we sort of closed down that city operation and turned to the farm full time. And, and through the work with all kinds of various brilliant people, both employees, volunteers, friends that have helped to create World's End into what it is today, I started to see that rather than large actions, you know, organized activism, trying to save the world, what I really needed to do was like save this small set of creatures right, right around me and make life as amazing as I could for those who are closest to me. And that hopefully that could have a rippling effect, um, potentially, but really just to kind of focus on those creatures and people who are like in my immediate sphere so that I could take care of them and make our lives as good as possible and talk about that with other people who came to visit. So I think that has become my core mission there at World's End is to make my life and those and those of us who share the project as rich and full of joy as possible right now. That's really powerful. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense to focus where you can feel the most empowered, where you feel like you can really make make an intervention. Mm-hmm. I'm really inspired by the Coyote Cafe model and how you're doing mm-hmm. this pay what you can model. Can you can you talk a little about how that how that got started and kind of what what it became? Sure. Sure. Uh, I mean, well, we grow a lot of food on the farm and I've always loved restaurants and my work has always been adjacent to the restaurant industry. And, you know, we talk so much, uh, my friends and I, the people at World End, about how problematic the hospitality industry is, how it's it's loaded with all kinds of heavy issues around classism, who serves who. Um, but at the same time, we all love that I, I, I'll say, just speak for myself, I love that experience of, of going into a restaurant and being taken care of in a specific kind of way. I love ambiance. I love creating ambiance. I love the communities that form around restaurants. Um, so I thought to myself, why, do, why don't we play restaurant on the farm? And what a better place to do it than where you're actually growing food and have a surplus of food every week. And so we created um, a few years ago this this like kind of zany idea around the Coyote Cafe. And and the name comes from, you know, when we have livestock that dies, we, we on a working farm like ours, we can't take the time to bury dead livestock. And, and when an animal dies, uh, you know, you don't usually eat it because um, you don't know really if why it was sick. So we would take, in order to dispose of, uh, you know, the bodies, we would take them out to the wood line, the back 60 acres where we have a a lot of coyote pressure in those backwoods. And so the coyotes would make quick work of disposing essentially of the animals. And so that area in the backwoods, we used to call the coyote cafe. And so the coyote cafe was born in 2019 as a way to sort of put a name to what our food program was. So both the feeding that we do for ourselves and our community, the one, you know, people who live on the farm, visitors who come, friends of ours, but also um, to, to kind of turn it outward and invite the public, anyone to come and eat on Sundays. And so on, every Sunday, starting in May, there was a, a set menu based on whatever excess produce we had. Um, and we invite people to come and eat in the barn. The, the whole idea of it being donation only is really important to me because I, I also am constantly wanting to take a look at 
different notions of value and how we assign value to certain aspects of what we do and produce. So a perfect example of this would be um, my mother and I both love to spin and we have a beautiful flock of Icelandic sheep. And my mom started collecting the wool for three years from my favorite you. Her name is was Gracie. She's since passed a, a beautiful black you. And my mom washed that wool and then hand spun it uh, and knit me a sweater. And the whole process took about three and a half years. And this sweater was such a gift, you can imagine. And it's like very thick, like armor, this black sweater. Um, I wear it every winter. And when I think about that sweater, it's really hard to put a value on that, right? Because in our current system of evaluation, we might attempt to put a number on it, a, a price tag, and we would have to take a look at all of the labor involved that my mom put into making the sweater. So the hours of spinning, the hours of knitting. But we also have to look behind that at all of the hours of farmhand labor that went into rotationally grazing those sheep, right, over the summertime for all of those years that we collected Gracie's wool. Um, and, and when you start to look back at like the chain of labor and um, energy that goes into an item like this sweater, it, it becomes an uncanny exercise. How much does that sweater cost? $40,000, $140,000. Like I could, I could in fact sit down and crunch numbers and give you an insane number of what this sweater should cost. Right. And so that is the same kind of principle that I want to apply to the food that we serve people. I, I don't want to put a number on it. I want it to be an experience that's a, um, accessible to anyone. Uh, I think we shouldn't – I think I want to live in a world where we don't buy food. I want to live in a world where we don't pay each other for hospitality and taking care of each other. And so the Coyote Cafe offers us an opportunity to play with that a little bit. And it's interesting because, you know, all different kinds of visitors can come. And you, it's interesting some visitors get really stuck on what to donate. They ask me, like, what's the average donation? How much do you suggest we donate? And I refuse to give a number. It's just it, it, it can't it won't it will not escape my lips. Um, and at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter because that's not why we do it. And, um, you know, I can speak to obviously we still very much have a firm foot in an old world um, that is run by capitalism. And I make money to support myself and the farm and buy gasoline for our vehicles in a different way. But I refuse to let that encroach on the work of feeding people on the farm at Coyote Cafe. So a foot in two worlds. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's it's, it's necessary. It's, it's complicated. It's, it's really interesting how you're talking about um, things like wool or like food being like at the same time, sort of pricelessly, pricelessly valuable but also like they should be free at the same time you know it's there's this there's it's complicated yeah i mean i i wouldn't i wouldn't i would hesitate to use the word free but uh, i i don't want to use numbers on animals really i mean you know raising animals that you eat is a very sacred experience that is uncomfortable to put numbers on so for the, by the same for the same reasons we don't sell our sheep's meat, we eat it and give it away as gifts and feed it to other people. Um, it's not that I have a problem with farms that sell meat at all. 
I just think for us, we have the privilege to experiment with some of these things and it's, it's important work for, for us. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are those farms that, you know, I can't remember. I'm not, um, I'm not well-schooled in, in this kind of intellectual world, but there is, there are studies and there are, there has been work done that puts dollar values on everything. Right. And even dollar values on human lives. When you start to talk about like, what is, what do like major uh, impacts to climate landscape look like? How do we put dollar values around that? I mean, that's the world mm. we live in. And it's, it's very toxic and very much needs to come to an end. <laughs> Could could you say anything about what you know? I when I when I hear about you moving out to this farm and doing you know some some work with these models that are you know sort of experimental, right? You're 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 trying things that you hadn't necessarily tried before. Like, are there ways that you feel like you've what have you discovered in experimenting with you know thinking about value in in new ways? I mean, the biggest thing that, you know, the first thing that comes to mind is the value of relationship and how important the work of relationship is. That is something that was uncovered in, in this experience for me that, you know, that's the most important work we do. So whether it's relationships between people I work with on the farm or whether it's relationships between me and the dogs that guard the sheep from the from the coyote, like all of the different uh, relationships that are present on a project like this between people and creatures, that is really the work. It's so much labor and so much important labor and valuable labor there. Hmm. Maybe ask me another question or the same question another way. Something else will be illuminated. Yeah. Were there were there questions that you had in your in your mind when you were starting to you know reach for some of these experiments? Were there things you were like, oh, I wonder how this will turn out, or sort of like, I wonder maybe this won't happen, maybe this will happen. Sort of what what was mm -hmm. on, what was on your mind? Uh, well, first of all, I, I'm a doer. I, I am someone who just goes and does things and thinks about it later. So I don't know. There, there, I, to be completely frank, there was not there was not always a plan. I've never had a five year plan. I've never had a ten year plan. Uh, I, I'm not someone who would advocate for not having a plan. It's just who I am. Um, I do think that an undercurrent for me in building the farm and community at World's End has always been. How do we work with different ideas of hierarchy and power and ownership? Um, and and also very important to me is how do we create a new way of looking at small family farms that are not organized around the head, uh, around heteronormative um, ideologies, right? So like it's so typical for small diversified homestead farms like World's End to be sort of um, entrenched in heteronormative family models, right? And that was always something that I wanted to sort of bust up. And I think it, it kind of goes along with the ideas of, um, that I wanted to pursue, of like how do, we, how do we run a farm like this differently or, or with different notions of power and, and 
under a different guise of hierarchy. I, I don't think that we ever going to, you know, when people work together, I don't think, I think hierarchy is necessary, but in terms of like what a normal business model, let's say, or farm business model looks like, how do we, um, untangle some of that hierarchy or play around with it a little bit? Um, I don't have any answers to that really yet. I, I think one of the things that we've been working on in the last year is turning the farm into a, a multi-stakeholder co-op cooperative, um, which is a very long process. Uh, but I'm really so excited to be hopefully about halfway, maybe almost three quarters of the way through it. And the idea there is like, I don't want to be the owner. I, don't, I mean, first of all, I, I don't believe in ownership. It's uncanny that we own land full stop that anyone owns land. So I really would like to envision a future where that is not the case. And interestingly, when you were at the farm last week and some of your comrades were there, even in the, some of the language that you guys used or in some of the thank you notes that were left, it was almost as if the land, you, you talked about the land as if like, I'm, I'm so excited to come back to this land, our land. It wasn't as, it wasn't as if you were talking about it as like, thank you for having us on your land, Sarah. It was, it, that, that I found really interesting and exciting to imagine, you know, a future where farm-based projects like this could exist in a network where people would sort of travel through them, around them without them feeling like they were owned by like specific people or a specific brand or a specific type of organization. Maybe that sounds a little loose, but. Oh, I love it. It's very beautiful to hear you articulate things that way. I mean, and you know, I think it's necessarily a little, you know, loose because uh, it's, mm. it's not here yet. So. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Loose threads waiting to be woven. <laughs> Yeah, to be spun and yeah, it's uh yeah, it's really nice to to hear you talk about this. I mean, would you be willing to to reach out into the, the ether a little more and talk a little more about what what you mean when you when you talk about sort of uh moving beyond ownership? Yeah, I mean, I think I mean, very specifically for me uh I mean, I I don't want to own. I don't want to own it. I don't want to hold it alone. I, you know, I, I'm, I definitely would describe myself as a very strong, powerful person who can is capable of owning, and being responsible and being a leader. Um, but as I've gotten older, I'm more interested in, like, exploring those places of my own vulnerability and wanting to have ushering in help and wanting to um, do the work of like co-ownership or, 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 you know, like I said, I think it's not that I'm looking to completely operate a scenario or be in a scenario that's, that's free from hierarchy, but I want to share, I want to share responsibility. Um, I want to, I mean, I, I'll be really frank with you too. Like I'm, I'm very tired. I'm very tired of holding it all together for, you know, the business, the farm for the last, um, you know, 15 years. And I would like to experiment with giving it to somebody else or giving it to a group of people and seeing how it changes when there's not just one benevolent dictator 
as one of my employees once called me, like when it's when it's shared in a in a mutual way, when the decisions are shared, you know, I think I think something new will emerge. I may not always like what I'm seeing, but I think I'm really excited for witnessing like all of the differences that will come about, you know, aesthetically, energetically, like different things being held sacred as opposed to like my own vision always completing my, you know, I, I think, um, I think it will be much richer is what I think. Yeah. I mean, that's been my experience with collective experiments is there is a sort of like ineffable richness to, to it when, when people, you know, that's the same thing as like the, the, the sort of magic of just social community. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. Are you, so you're in the, I'm right that you're in the process of visioning what like sort of the logistics of this multi-stakeholder cooperative would look like. Yeah. So essentially we formed a, we started working with an amazing organization called CDI cooperative development Institute. And they, um, they essentially use various grants to help facilitate the, um, the morphing of businesses into cooperatives and, they helped me put together a steering committee, which is about a year ago. So we've been in the steering committee phase for about um, a year and we meet monthly. The steering committee meets monthly and we'll meet for another three months and then we'll move towards, um, you know, we'll we'll write the bylaws and and move towards the the legal transference. Um, But the steering committee is made up of current, former employees of Saipua and World's End and also friends of the farm. So it's about 13 people. Um, And that group is tasked with writing the, the code essentially for how the cooperative will function. Um, And I mean, I think I'd be curious to know your experience in cooperative community situations. I mean, you talk about the ineffable, richness, which I definitely agree with. And then, of course, paired with that, you get a lot of exhaustive communication, right? And all of yeah. that. I, I think I think it's interesting to, I think one of the things I want to be really upfront and honest about is like, it's an exhausting process, right? Mm. I think decisions, when decisions are made, and this is where hierarchy comes in and can be really useful still, I think. But when decisions are made collectively, they take 10 times the amount of amount of time and um i guess what i'm interested in is can there be i I, i'm just interested to bring this group of people through that process and see how we do it so it's very personal too of course right i think um and and of course one of the tenets of cooperatives is to network with other cooperatives and to help new cooperatives form and to hold space and share information. And so I think I'm just excited to join a community of cooperatives. And I think the vision that I very much have is that World's End will be an evolving, you know, farm uh, craft artistic entity that will have revolving doors where people come in and out of it. And that, you know, in the way that I have been sort of very much um, stewarding it with 125% of my energy for the last 11 years. At some point in the near future, it will be held cooperatively with my comrades so that I might 
go out the revolving door to another kind of beautiful cooperative situation where I might want to learn about something else that's completely outside of what World's End holds. And so the idea being that, like, you know, it's a open, it's a permeable membrane where information, people come in, information, people go out. And so it's never um, boring for me. Like, I want to jump around. I want to leapfrog, you know, to different places. I, I mean, that's that's my personal vision for myself as I go through this process. Um, because also, I will bring so much more back when I have a little bit of freedom from it. Do you know that experience of, like, when you've been so deeply entrenched in something and then you leave, you have that kind of fresh perspective, you know? Yeah, I mean, most recently getting to visit your farm and then come back home. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Love that. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, I I love I love the vision you're describing of um, I mean, am, am I right that you're you're talking about sort of how opening up ownership or like thinking about sort of cooperative structures also invites more relationship between these sort of projects because people can kind of people aren't so tightly linked to one thing or is is that right yeah absolutely absolutely also i feel very strongly i mean at least in the farming community i think very strongly that not everybody should have their own farm farms are way more work than everybody wants to do individually and i think the other idea that's like really firmly rooted in this for me is like let's get rid of this like worship of um you know american individualism like it's just it doesn't serve us anymore it makes us all like sick and tired literally so i'm excited to i mean yes i did build my own farm technically it is still my farm um but i do not recommend it for everybody and i don't want it for myself anymore i want you know i want to open it up let other people run it I, I, I don't I want to like have it be run by other people. I want to see how it changes under the hands of other people. That was something that was so nice for me last week when you all descended. I really was able to sort of like step back and watch from the sidelines how you ran it. Really like you guys ran the kitchen, you know, you ran the barn, you ran the you know, you 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 took over and it was really such a nice experience for me to witness. Um, and a great little exercise for us, I think, um, to see also like where were the sticky points for us, you know, what could be feel uncomfortable for me. Um, but yeah, not everybody, not everybody should have their own farm. We need to work together on, um, on farms that can be actually really like powerful places of change. Um, and that, that's also, you know, I think linked to that idea of like the heteronormative like nuclear family as the center of the farm like let's get rid of that doesn't do us any good yeah yeah well I mean, first off I'm, I'm glad that it still feels like it was a benevolent takeover on our part I'm happy about that <laughs> um but also yeah the yeah the heteronormative like individualistic I mean I feel like people that are it's the the sad thing is that people that are people can have these visions but yet it it still seems like for for a lot of people that the entry point into tending land is still for like one person or a family to you know put in their personal capital to 
purchase land and invest in infrastructure. And it, it really takes a lot of capital and it often takes like individual thrusts of energy yeah. and, and investment. Yeah, I agree with that. I think in some ways we sidestepped that in the sense of, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think in some ways it's easier to build the farm first and then open it up and have it become collectively owned after. Because so often, if you it, when you start with a group of people who have never been in land-based businesses before, but have a big vision, and then they, you know, were to let's say buy land together, a group of five, ten people, then they're not only learning how to work um, in community, but they're also learning how to farm at the same time, which is a very which is a recipe for disaster. Mm. You know, I think it's easier in some ways to. Um, join a project or as an individual start a project and then bring people into it. And I, I, I mean, it's not that it's impossible. I just think I, I'm, if I'm going to speak plainly and realistically from what I've seen, I think that's kind of uh, the case. But it's like, let's not be hard on ourselves. Like we all still have like, you know, it, we were all brought up to think individually and to, you know, operate from these like norms around ownership and success and and so that's okay. Like we're still, you know, like I said, we still have, we can't ignore that we have one foot in the old world. Like it still feels great for me to buy things on Amazon, like to fulfill my needs in this way. That's like very straightforward, yeah. you know, that, that that's like against everything that I want for the world. But it's like, I still was, you know, I, I was brought up in a shopping mall. That, that was like the, my first experience of pleasures, you know, 1980s materialism so we can't you know erase those those um those strong you know ties to our in our past like it i think um i think it needs to be a frankenstein of all these different things in some ways Mm. putting together different things different ideas building something new you know using what we have you know, so somebody who has capital, somebody who has access to, like for me, I had access in 2011 when I bought the farm. I was running a very successful floristry business in New York City and had access to capital through that business. So I used it, you know, um, and now now I'm here, you know, 11 years later. So I think we have to use the resources that we have, people who have them need to use them. Yeah. I appreciate you being realistic or sort of like harshly real. Like there's like ways in like, like the way you talk about how um, it feels like hierarchy is often really necessary to just like get work done sometimes. Like obviously you want the person who knows how to do a thing to lead a group of people doing a thing sometimes. Mm -hmm. And everyone doesn't need to be equally in charge of how a thing gets done because it just, yeah. And it's just, it feels like um, it feels like the way to reach for, some of these utopian or like idealistic, these ideological things sometimes is to just actually be grounded in like reality. Like that's the way is to like, you know, it. like you asked about my experience with cooperative stuff. And I, I totally hear you about being overwhelmed with bureaucratic process and sort of like the just talking and meetings. And um, if that, if that sort of sounds like that's something you were kind of alluding to, it's just like, it takes a mm-hmm. lot 
yeah, it's a lot of conversation. It's a lot of negotiating what everyone else, where everyone else is at and kind of interpolating and making sense of it all. And like, partly something I've learned is that like, it's not, um, it's not always necessary to like completely honor everyone's equal opinion all of the time. And like, that's kind of like a way to like make something to make cooperative structures actually real is to like, for example, honor people's effort and investment, you know, and people that have put more work into something should deserve to have more say and like how something happens. And it's not necessarily like an ownership thing, but, you know, just in people that have put more work into a project in my town, I think they deserve to say more about what's going to happen with it, you know, in the same way that workers should have ownership of their own labor, you know? Mm. And that's not, that's not like a perfect cooperative kind of occupy consensus thing. It's, it's like, it's, it's, it's yeah. less, less pure than that. Yeah. Well, I don't think purity exists. Right. I think, and I don't think that, um, you know, we have to, we have to constantly remind ourselves we're not aiming for perfection here. And this is also why I have problems with the notion of utopia. I, you know, I, I, I that's, we could just leave that there. But I think when, when you're, when you're talking just now, it, it brings me back to the point that I made earlier about like relationship is really the work, right? So being able to see one another in a group and see where people shine and where their strengths are and like understanding that not everyone needs to be a leader and watching some people be really good at not being a leader, but being a follower and not feeling like one thing is more important than the other one. Do you, does that make sense? I, yeah. I think that's where, I mean, hierarchy is interesting. Somebody said to me once, like, you're never going to get rid of hierarchy. Like, look at, you know, if you have a three-year-old in the room or you'll know there's a hierarchy there, right? Like it's, the, you know, or let's maybe not a three-year-old, like a one-year-old, like the one-year-old cries that they have all the power. They, you know, babies <laughs> have a lot of power in the room. So, you know, there's always going to be a hierarchy. We're human animals, right? I think, you know, divorcing ourselves from nature is one of the first problems that we have. So remind, remembering that like we are social human animals and that, that kind of hierarchy is very much good and entrenched in what it is to be us. So, um, but not valuing people who are leaders more than people who are not, I think is kind of the key for me. Um, hmm. Can you say more about that? Well, we need, you know, in a farm scenario, for example, let's just, let's all break it down in a very realistic way. And this makes me a little uncomfortable, but I'm just going to lean into it. So I work right now, we were dramatically understaffed. I mean, the farm is beautiful. It's magic. We're also always broke and about $300,000 in debt. So there's a lot of problems behind the scenes, you know, what you see there. We're going to be okay, but it's complicated. Anyway, so we're dramatically understaffed. There's basically four of us who run that place. And it's me, Kim, uh, Knucklehead, who um, is in charge of livestock, Mark, who's in charge of gardens, vegetables and flower gardens. And then Susan, who's the bookkeeper. And then I am in charge of hosting hospitality and also social media and also marketing and a bunch of other things. So, And I'm the boss, right? So is my job more important than Kim's? You know, I, I don't 
nothing would exist on the farm without Kim. So even though in a typical sense, I mean, technically I am the CEO, right? So in a typical sense, you'd say, oh, well, the CEO's time is more valuable, more important. And yet the whole thing would fall apart if Kim wasn't doing what she does every day, which is more manual labor, to say it plainly, um, and maintaining what exists, the infrastructure, the livestock, all of it. So I, I like to think, you know, it's not about one person being more important than the other, although I am much better at leading and I am the leader. So I do those things. I'm much better at marketing. So I do those things right now. It gets a little bit hairy when you say, okay, well, you know, because again, we still have one foot in the old world. So like, how do we pay everybody differently? Like again, typically like the CEO makes more money, right? And their time is more valuable in a dollar sense. But this is where I think this notion of mutual aid, which in the broader sense of our culture has been like relegated to, you know, free food fridges and and all of that good work. We need to bring mutual aid like right into our living rooms and be like, okay, Kim, Sarah, Mark, Susan, like the four of us who run the farm. Right. How do we talk really openly and honestly about like what we need individually? Like what are our basic needs? What are our wants and desires? And how do we express those to the group and have those be held by the group so that if I truly feel and express to them that I need certain things in order to be myself, happy, full of joy, running, doing my job on the farm. And if that is, has more to do with dollars than someone else's needs and wants and desires, then like, how do we as a group hold all of those different things together Mm. so it kind of makes money separate it's like money is so boring and uninteresting it's like you know if i say i need more of it and someone says they need less of it and we're working collectively without the fear of like losing a job or if we're if we're actually co-owners right and nobody has to worry about getting kicked off the farm or getting losing their job and there's like something starts to loosen up there in a really interesting way am i making any sense yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, it seems like part of what you're talking about is sort of centering relationship and sort of other things yes. kind of happening around that. Yes. It's a nice way of putting it, centering relationship first, for sure. And it's it's really beautiful the way you're describing that sort of like other thing. I mean, it, it makes me it makes me think that like, you know, centering relationship then means that other things other it's almost like it's almost like capitalism like alienation is so much a part of its center of how it works, the individualistic nature of it. And so it's like, once you actually feel like you're deeply tied to other people, something start, some bad things start to dissolve around that. If you really sort of prioritize um, caring about other people. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Maybe that's too gooey. (laughs) Well, I mean, look, we don't know what's going to work, right? And that's fine and exciting. And, you know, come talk to me in 10 years. I might be like Cruella DeVille, you know, skinning puppies and living with my Jaguar on the farm by myself. I have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I think, you know, this is sort of like how we're shaking it over here right now and seeing how it how it pans out, you know, Um I like what you say, centering relationships. That's I'm gonna I'm gonna use that in my language from now on. So thank you for that, Kay. Um, you know, but also just to, you know, it's exhausting work too. You know, 
Yeah. We're not used to it. We're not, we're, we're not used to that. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I'm sitting in my friend's house cause I ran away to be off the farm for two days. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think it's like, you know, remembering that we still have to, we still live in the old world still too. I, you know, I don't know. Yeah, I really appreciate you, but like, like that makes me think about how you were pointing out, like, yeah, it's really nice to just like click a button on Amazon and have your needs met, and that actually yeah. feels really good. And we should be like real about that, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the only way that I can stay in this work ongoing. You know, like the only way I can do it is to be like, all right, like is to operate with some kindness to myself because um, week in week out, I'm there doing it. You know, and so, and actually I mentioned that I, I came off the farm today's Tuesday. So for the last three weeks, I've been like, oh, okay, maybe I need to get off the farm every week, Tuesday, Mondays and Tuesdays, which are sort of my designated days off. Like maybe I can only do that work if I'm like able to step away and be alone in a really deep, meaningful way for two days a week, so then I can go back. Right. So I think it's about like, you know, not being too stuck in the idealism of it or the dogma of it, or like, you know, the, the, the notions that we have around like what this kind of work is, it's just being very real with yourself about like, okay, how do I maintain my own, uh, needs like when I'm, when I'm there and in it, you know? Yeah. Yeah it's a silo there. I mean, it's gorgeous and it's so beautiful and it, but it's also so intense, you know? Um, so yeah, it's a, a, a silo. Like it's uh it's kind of off on its own. You mean? Yeah. I mean, when you're there at like, for example, maybe you experience this, but like when I'm there, there, you know, I don't watch TV. I don't have the news. I don't sometimes like, days and days will go by before it, but you know, or I'm not getting in my car and leaving. And so I say a silo because it's like, it's contained. It's like a, it's a contained, um, you know, entity where you really lose sight of like the rest of the world, which is powerful, which is why, you know, it's a great place to experiment with this stuff. But you know, for me, it becomes in order to continue to do it year after year, like it, it, it consumes me. So I have to like step away sometimes and that's okay. Right. I mean, literally like I am the person who will tell you about the importance of looking at a sweater like that one that I mentioned earlier in our conversation and like showing visitors the process of like sheep rotational grazing talking to them about grass about the power of the sun in the grass to make the wool shearing the wool spinning the wool making the sweater and then i say to them like the next time you go you know to h&m or zara or any place like that and you see a wool garment for less than you know a thousand dollars you can imagine that there is some exploitation hiding behind the process of that sweater whether it be humans, animals, the environment, right? Mm -hmm. Because now you see what it takes to make it. And so you understand. But I'll also tell you that sometimes when things get too much for me on the farm, or I get too, what's the word, exhausted, or just like 
cycling there, I'll like get in my car and drive to Albany and go to the mall and like look at Zara and buy a thing. So like both things are true. Like I'm holding both of those things at the same time. Mm -hmm. Right. And I, yeah, there is, this is why I feel like I reject dogma because it's so dangerous. It doesn't allow for like the work to have any kind of ongoingness, right. When you're like so stuck in a dogma. So, you know, also you'll get a kick out of this too, but like we grow obviously all kinds of beautiful vegetables. We don't have to, we, you know, we don't really have to shop very much, but on my days off, I will go to the food co-op in Albany and I'll buy a pre-made kale salad when I'm sitting amongst like, you know, 50 bed feet of beautiful kale at the farm. Like that's how I treat myself, you know, and I think that's okay. It's great. Like, first of all, they make a very good massage kale salad at honest weight in Albany, but you know, allowing myself to just like dip out of it a little bit. Right. Is what keeps it possible for me to like, you know, hit the pavement there week after week, year after year. Yeah. So, yeah. Like talk to me in 10 years, see how I'm doing. But <laughs> <laughs> um, that's been like one, one thing for me that's been illuminating. Yeah. That's really interesting. Makes a lot of sense. Taking a break. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, the sort of like uh, farm world and then, old world or you know city life makes me think of how of uh something i'm really curious about is like the um you know coming from the midwest it feels like there's something very different about being in new york and having the you know not being too far away from new york city and albany and some of these other places too but like can you talk a little bit about what it sort of like that what it's like to be in a land project, but then having some kind of nearby circulation to, to the, to the metropole. Yeah. I mean, I, I love the city. I mean, I spent a long time living there and I really believe in urbanism and love urbanism and love to go and visit the city. Uh, you know, my partner lives in the city. So, um, I'm there a handful of times, you know, every season, every month, it, I'm, I'm there often much more in the winter because the farm really sort of like shrinks in the winter and the work in the winter is so much less. So I can move around more freely, but the, um, I love coffee restaurants, you know, so the food and things in New York city is just top notch. I love, I love fancy things also. You need to know this. About me. <laughs> I love, I mean, I love like going and looking at, fancy things in stores and museums. I love looking at gold. I love to go to the Met and look at all of the stolen treasure, you know? And I think, um, so I love, I love being in a land project that's like within driving distance to New York city, especially, which I feel like is the greatest city in the world. And I love also it's proximity brings so many interesting artists and people through to us at world's end. And I think one of the things that's like up for me this year, you know, we, throw a really big party every year in the summer and um it just happens at the end of july and so many people from the city come i mean a lot of my community is based in new york city so so many people come from the city and you know one of the reflections amongst the staff after the party was like are we just like a, a an agricultural site for people to come and like experience nature for like a day two days smoke weed, relax, be by the pond, jump in the lake sort of thing. 
And, you know, my, my response to them is like, yes, we are that too, you know, and that's okay. That's fine. Um, and again, I think this is where it's like important to like, just not be so connected to like a specific dogma, but to be like, everybody should have access to a relaxing weekend in nature. And sometimes that's all it needs to be. You know, it doesn't, we don't have to like hit people over the head all the time with, you know, the sweater story, for example. Like sometimes (laughs) we can just like invite them to come and like lay on the dock, you know, with their floaty float in the pond. It it doesn't always have to be, um, there can be different ways of engaging. And I think, I think that's important. So it's a little divergent from your question about, the city but um no i mean i think it's right on and that's something that we think about um at the land project that i'm at in indiana is that we we think about ourselves in part as as a retreat space um as a place to to go and you know just be in in the forest and with the flowers and the vegetables and the animals and just to get to um get to feel that because I mean it's it's not you know uh it's it's not to be underestimated you know how powerful it is to just like be to be in a beautiful place especially if you're if you're spending all your time in a in a a city which I guess I use lately in the the small town that we're, we're nearby but you know especially New York uh you know it's it is really I mean for the people that come out and get to you know have a day of whatever smoking weed and swimming in a pond it's like it's actually really profound you know yeah and pleasurable for them and that's something that i believe very deeply into is like let's get as much pleasure to people as possible you know and 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 be responsible with our land and our project at the same time like that there's nothing wrong with that you know yeah there's this like heavy notion that sits over farmers like it's so serious and toiling and it's like it is it's those things too but I think, and also the more people that we expose to the project, you know, again, like the more people in the future might take care of it, right? So it's not that I'm expecting all 150 of those party people to come and like steward land at or around World's End, but certainly I've increased my chances of more people taking care of it in the future beyond me the more I expose different people to it, you know, Mm. and maybe not even this land or that, you know, but maybe another piece of land. Mm. And I think that's where like the importance of land based businesses is so cannot be um, overlooked in this transition period that we are in, which is to say making a living and also protecting land So, you know, land-based business means you are generating a living, you're making money, you're earning capital, and also at the same time protecting land and creatures. So I think we need more of those kinds of projects as we transition out of capitalism, right? You know, and land-based businesses also that like don't, you know, don't overdevelop that don't put up fencing so that wildlife quarters can be, you know, can remain and change through climate change, for example, like that stuff is so important. How do we keep, how, how are we allowing migration patterns to change, you know, and that gets into a larger conversation around, um, 
you know, linking up land projects where we can like maintain wildlife corridors. But yeah, the more people who come visit, the more people we might spark into doing this kind of work in various ways. So that's why we turn on that 40 inch disco ball, get them up there, get them up there, get them excited <laughs> about something, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, do you feel like, uh, are there, do you feel like there are things that have, yeah, like can you point to relationships with other land projects in the area and kind of what it's what it's been like to try to connect with other people that have been doing similar work over the years? Yeah, I mean, I feel like I'm lucky to have a network of um to be part of a network of flower farmers specifically in the Hudson Valley because that's my vocation. So, um that feels like a very supportive community even and even more locally to where we are there's a group called the root the root community um very similar project to world's end um that also they have a big party where they bring a lot of people from different places including new york city every summer to kind of camp and live on the land for a weekend um but they are um builders and being in community with them is amazing because they have they they that group has all kinds of skill sets that our group is lacking and so being able to like exchange with them has been really valuable in in the sense of um you know help using them for their help with like building projects or advice um we do not have that skill set in our group um but i mean where we are also to be speak plainly in you know there are not a lot of projects like ours and a lot of the community the local community doesn't fully understand what we do and i i watch the way that i like change my language in order to talk to my neighbors for example and i'm not always comfortable with that um in the last few years especially i've made a major effort to include my neighbors on the road in what we do um you know, and and I'm thinking of two of my neighbors specifically, the two closest ones. They they, I think they really like me, and I think they really like the project, and they come. Um, but they, you know, there's all kinds of things we disagree about politically. Um, we definitely have different ideas about social justice and justices. Um, you know, but including them and being in conversation with them is like important work I think too um, it's so easy to and I think that's another part of this that's when we, when we talk about the relationship between the city and the farm is like you know my community in the city which is very dear to me like we all agree on everything for the most part yeah, we're like a monoculture of like <laughs> a very specific tribe where we all align on politics and we wear the same clothes you know we all it's there's that's not a healthy way to bring a project like this into the future like we need more diversity than that mm. you know so i think that's where the neighbors come in in my mind like we need to get them involved and we need to find ways that we can talk about even the hardest things you know yeah yeah that's difficult work that we all that we all could probably do more of yeah yeah it's not what you wake up wanting to do it's like <laughs> argue with your neighbors about abortion but you know. <laughs> To wrap up, could you give me a, a vision? I know you're not a planner, but like, <laughs> what do you what do you what do you what do you hope for? Uh, what do you hope for in the in the come in the coming years here? 
Well, I don't want to build anything else at World's End. I feel like we're done with infrastructure, so I'm excited to uh, stop building. If that sounds funny, it's definitely the truth. And organize the cooperative. I, I'm very excited for the cooperative ownership to take place for that to happen. And I think it will in the next year. So I'm excited for that. And, and like I said, I'm excited to be able to walk away a little bit more and sort of discover my identity outside of this project, which has been, you know, frankly, all consuming for me for the last decade. And I think I will be such a better leader when I come back, you know, when I have a little bit more flexibility to be in more freedom. This, this is, I think, maybe worth mentioning, you know, in a farm project like this, or I think in any project, any business, you're always like scaling. You're always like more, better, more buildings. You know, I could sit here and I could say to you, like, I want to build a sauna. I want to buy the neighbor's land that has like, you know, better water sources for our farm. And I want to expand. And, and that stuff gets so dangerous when you're just like always building, always growing. It's not, um, I, I'm really trying to watch that desire and sort of temper it and realize that there's like other ways that we can grow without always getting bigger, expanding. I mean, mm. so I think I want to cooperativize. I want to pay off our debts. I want to like really sink into the infrastructure that we have at the farm right now and use it. I want a vintage Jaguar for myself <laughs> and I want to rebuild my pack of dogs, which I've, I've been through like a sad two years of losing a lot of my dogs and I've no dogs now and I'm going to start rebuilding my pack and I want more performance. That's something that I, I can definitely say with, emphasis is that there i want more performance and creative play oh i'm so excited for that and i don't have to build a thing to make that happen which is really nice i don't have to spend a dollar to make that happen so i'm i i'm like so pleased to sit in this position of like the building is all done we've like worked so hard to make it what it is like now let's like turn inward you know enjoy it share it that's that's where we're at This has been Partisan Gardens. On this program, we are going to look at the world through the lens of food. We will speak directly to those with their hands in the dirt. But also to those in all sectors of the food world. To the servers and those being served. To the history of food in this country and beyond. We will focus on understanding the systemic problems in our food industry, including food scarcity and racism. We want to talk to you too. Please write us at partisangardens at wfhb.org and we will be in touch.